What does it mean to be brainwashed? We use this word usually to mean people who've had their minds suddenly and completely conditioned to accept, uncritically, a belief system or a particular worldview. People often use the term when they're talking about a change that happens really suddenly in a person. But it can also be something that happens slowly over time by the power of suggestion, where our minds are conditioned in ways that we don't even notice to accept certain beliefs. You could nearly look at it like we're, we're all brainwashed. We're all brainwashed by some sources or others. No source is neutral, like no article, any article you read, any video you watch, any podcast you listen to, all have their own agenda. Each alters the mind of the audience little by little. But we can identify those agendas if we embrace and nourish our innate ability to look for patterns. Carl Sagan said that science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking. He said if we teach only the findings and products of science without communicating its critical method, how can the average person possibly distinguish science from pseudoscience? He argues that the tools of scepticism don't require an advanced college degree to master and they should be available to everyone in society, but they aren't. Society is arranged in such a way that our lives are utterly dependent on science and technology, but most of us don't really understand them. Most of us are too busy with work or just getting on with our lives, holding our lives together, so thinking becomes a luxury. I think you've let him get away with enough already, Governor. It can get you into a lot of trouble thinking, Errol. I shouldn't do so much of it. Our education system is arranged so that critical thinking skills aren't really taught until third level, the most exclusive level of education. And even then, they're mostly taught in relation to art and literature. It becomes privileged information. Consider the cost of most third level courses now. When I finished my MA 10 years ago, it cost just over two grand. The undergrad I did before that cost less than that one year of a master's. So to do the whole four years of university, four years of third level education cost for the fees, I'd say a little over three grand for the four years. But now, at the, like today, to do even one year of an undergraduate course costs minimum three grand, and that's just the tuition fees. One of the books I used for the for this podcast, the Paul Grave Handbook of Critical Thinking and Higher Education, costs just under a hundred euro for the ebook, for an invisible book. To buy a real life three dimensional paper based one costs you just under two hundred quid. Now. Thanks to the internet, I was able to download the introduction from this book for free, which contained all the basic definitions that I was looking for, and that was enough for this podcast. And, you know, surely there's there's more affordable books out there on critical thinking, but this one, intended as a tool for education, is priced so that most people won't be able to afford it. Pile that on to the cost of a course to begin with, and how many people do you know that would be able to take it or interested? And most people, if they're going to spend that money on getting educated, they're going to want to take a course that will lead to a definite job at the end of it. So the result? Very few people are getting highly trained in critical thinking. Very few are even exposed to a basic education in it. Even those who go to university come away lacking because the modern university is more concerned with developing skills to meet market requirements than to educate the whole human being. Research carried out on US college graduates demonstrated that between a third and half of them couldn't differentiate fact from opinion in the sample texts they were shown. The study showed that they were easily persuaded by rhetoric and emotional blackmail. So what's rhetoric? The most basic description of rhetoric is that it's the art of persuasion, of convincing and persuasive speaking or writing. It's a skill of argument. If someone is a good rhetorician, 
rhetorician, I think I'm saying that right, it doesn't mean they're right, it just means they're good at persuading people. You might be familiar with the concept of a rhetorical question. It means a question that isn't really a question, it's just being used to make a point. What do you think, Errol? I think we should drip dry on government while we've got the chance. It was a rhetorical question, Errol. What have I told you about thinking? Now this is the difficult part. Am I being affected by someone's feelings because of basic empathy, or am I being pushed through emotional blackmail? Am I being convinced by evidence or by a skilled rationalist? The study of philosophy, critical thought and scientific method can help us here. Now, there's a lot of, I suppose, stereotypes that exist about philosophers, about philosophy. Most people, or a lot of people anyway, might think of, you know, some work-shy chin-stroker arguing over coffee in a trendy cosmopolitan cafe. And just because that's mostly true doesn't mean that we can, doesn't mean that there's not a lot to be learned from a study of philosophy. It can be a bit of a bad word, philosophy, like you're about to get all wanky and boring. It's considered vague and separate from reality somehow. But thinking critically, thinking critically is a profoundly practical act. Thinking is an action. One of the key parts of critical thinking is called metacognition, which is just a fancy way of saying thinking about thinking. Thinking about how we think and what we think about in order to improve how we do it. It's, it's honing a skill, it's like practicing a musical instrument or training for a boxing match. Author and cultural critic Bell Hooks said that the heartbeat of critical thinking is the longing to know, to understand how life works. Every one of us is born with this longing to know, but somewhere along the way most of us lose it. Through impatient adults, too tired to keep answering, and then finally through the systematic crush of the compulsory education system. Somewhere along the way the wonder and curiosity is beaten or berated out of us. Thinking becomes an unpleasant task, and wondering seems like a waste of time. So we just accept things the way they are, and we think that this is, this is just the way it is. A similar thing happens with our imaginations, where using our imagination outside the strict boundaries of art becomes silly. Child's play. Remember what Sagan said about science. It requires a combination of sceptical thinking and creative thinking. That's a solid definition of critical thinking also. We need to be able to identify and analyse facts, but we also need to be able to use our imagination to see things from other people's perspectives, to envision the likely consequences of our actions. In the Critical Thinking Handbook, I write about the two waves of critical thinking. The first wave goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and it's concerned with logic, learning to identify arguments and evaluate those arguments. The goal is to cultivate the skills and awareness of logic, reason and argument to avoid fallacy. A fallacy is basically a bad argument, it usually involves a bit of deception. The fallacy appears to be a good argument and it appears convincing, but it's not actually true. In a moment, we'll be looking over some of the logical fallacies that Carl Sagan listed in his baloney detection kit, and we'll see if we can find some examples of them. The second wave, developed in the 20th century, involves looking at the big picture, at the whole person. Instead of just focusing on the details of a specific argument, the second wave applies critical thinking to the attitudes and emotions, the ideology and the psychology behind the argument. Another way to put it would be that the first wave is about criticism, looking for flaws in arguments or claims, and the second wave is about critique, identifying hidden meanings behind arguments or claims. To begin this podcast, I have been critiquing the education system, that it doesn't educate the whole person, it just shapes us into a simple cog to feed the workforce. Critics of compulsory education call this the hidden curriculum, 
the way that schools reinforce the unwritten rules and social norms of a society and maintain a strict hierarchical and authoritarian structure. They say that what schools really teach are an unquestioning obedience of the rules and deference to authority, acceptance of hierarchy and a lack of agency in directing our own lives. The whole reason we have elected officials is so we don't have to think all the time. Just like that rainforest care a few years back. Our officials saw there was a problem and they fixed it, didn't they? No, Dad, I don't think... There's that word again. The Brazilian educator Paulo Freire said that Leaders who do not act dialogically, who do not encourage dialogue, but insist on imposing their decisions, do not organise the people. They manipulate them. They do not liberate, nor are they liberated. They oppress. He said that we are trained to accept this structure through our schooling, where we have to uncritically accept what the teachers say, and we will be punished if we speak up or challenge them, even if the teacher is talking nonsense. He said, if the structure does not permit dialogue, then the structure must be changed. For Freire, what a real educator does is to help the students become themselves. Compulsory schools don't do this. Now at the same time, I agree with that completely, but I also believe that education is a human right. And the idea that we should have publicly funded institutions of education is a vital principle for maintaining a functioning and healthy society. It's vital, in my view, that we pass on the knowledge built up over the generations and maintain it for future generations, while making sure it's accessible to the greatest number of people possible. The critique I'm presenting you with here is not of education, but of how it's organised. The students are at the bottom of the ladder in a hierarchy. They are subject to the authority of the teacher, who in turn is subject to the authority of the school board or the administrators, and then finally they are subject to the ultimate authority of the state government. Early 20th century anarchist activist Emma Goldman said, What then is the school of today? It is for the child what the prison is for the convict and the barracks for the soldier. A place where everything is being used to break the will of the child and then to pound, knead and shape it into a being utterly foreign to itself. This might seem like a bit of a poetic take on things, but it is an interesting historical coincidence maybe that the system of state-sponsored education as we now know it first began to emerge at the same time as the modern prison system, talking like the 18th century, or the, or the 19th century, sorry, the 1800s. They both are modelled on army barracks. There are structures, physical and organisational structures built for discipline and control. Now, of course, through years of reform, schools are mostly no longer as brutal in Ireland or the UK as they were when Goldman said that in the early 20th century in America. But the fundamental structure has altered very little. We all remember, we all get up in unison when the bell rings and go along to the next thing that we have to do, regardless of whether it's beneficial to us or not. We just have to do it because that's just the rules. Now, there's nothing wrong with discipline. Having discipline is very important for being able to think critically. Remember, a key part of critical thinking is the ability to exercise control over how we think and what we think about. So that involves discipline, but it also involves allowing thoughts to flow freely in a relaxed and accepting way. An overemphasis on discipline leads to an underemphasis on creativity and freedom. There has to be a balance, and I don't think compulsory schooling, like we all went through, really maintains that balance. And there's loads of reasons for that, like some teachers are just genuinely bad teachers who are, they might be interested in their subject but they're not really able to transfer the knowledge to someone else, or some people who just got into the job because they thought it would be a handy number. But 
I'd say most teachers aren't really like that. Like Most teachers you meet are sound enough and sensible and they care deeply about what they teach, but the problem is that they're bound by law to teach whatever's on the curriculum, regardless of what their, where their students' interests lie, regardless of what they or their students are actually passionate about. There's little or no room for asking fundamental questions about how life works, how society is organised, why things are the way they are. Having no curriculum doesn't mean having no standards for the knowledge that's being taught. It just means allowing the students to have some kind of a directional role in, in deciding what it is they're actually going to learn. This analysis or critique of education helps us to understand why so many people lack skills in critical thinking. They just aren't on the curriculum, and if we look at the hidden curriculum, it's not just that critical thinking is missing, it's that it's actively suppressed and subverted by the rules and culture of schools. The majority of us have gone through 13 or 14 years of compulsory schooling that actively worked to turn us into passive people who don't like thinking. So we just spend our lives working in jobs that leave us too tired or worn out to think, even if we still wanted to. Thankfully, the principles of critical thinking and scientific thinking are not that complicated, as writers like Carl Sagan and Bell Hooks show us. The key is practice, like with any skill. If we take this practice into our daily lives, it becomes second nature, and we become less susceptible to trickery. Along with the principles of the scientific method that I went through in part two, Sagan's baloney detection kit also lists some logical fallacies to watch out for. Common fallacies used in arguments to trick and convince that actually just hide the fact that the argument lacks evidence. I'll be using some of them now as a guide to get through the rest of this episode. Before I really get into the, to the details of it though, I can't emphasise this enough. Putting this stuff into practice really is the most important thing because Although the, the principles and the, the fallacies are fairly easy to understand and to explain, actually applying them to our own thinking, like actively thinking critically, that can be very difficult because it involves putting aside our own opinions and being aware enough of our own feelings so that we don't get overwhelmed by them. The logical fallacies I'm about to look at are mostly fairly straightforward and you'll probably get them in no time, but that won't mean that you're automatically immune to them. And just because I'm the one explaining the fallacies doesn't mean I won't ever fall into them myself. The value of learning this stuff is not just so we'll be able to judge other people's claims, but so that we can honestly judge our own opinions as well. A logical fallacy can be used by anyone, as a conscious tool or unconsciously. You'll come across them in the printed news, in broadsheets in tabloids, online, in YouTube videos, on the 6-1 news, on Sky News, on the radio, on podcasts. You'll also use them yourself without even realising it. You'll use them in conversation and you'll come across them in conversation. I do as well. It's easily done because um, they can be convincing and at first they sound true. Learning about them and understanding why they're not necessarily true can help us avoid using them ourselves and avoid being tricked by them. This is the kind of stuff that I don't think really gets covered in schools and it doesn't even really get covered in university considering at least not in proportion to how important it is. In school we learned about science, about the laws and theories of science, but I don't think we were really taught how to think scientifically. That's what I'm trying to get at with these podcasts, that science isn't something out of our reach, it's something we can all actively practice. We can bring these truth-finding tactics into our daily lives. However, 
Some critics of the education system would even say that what I'm trying to do with this podcast, the idea that you can't even teach someone how to think, is an insulting idea. I don't agree with that. While it's, it's true that all of us have unique ways of looking at things and peculiar ways of thinking about things, and all that's valuable and it's worth exploring, there's actually way more commonalities between how we all think, regardless of our cultural background or our religious background or our gender or anything else. We've, we, we mostly all have the same kinds of brains. And a really common thing is that many of us are impulsive thinkers. Our minds can be a non-stop inner monologue or train of thought, much of it repetitive, and most of the thoughts are forgotten soon after they occur. You're just rehashing conversations or things we've heard. Like how many times during the day do we actively think about something versus how much time are thoughts just occurring? It's kind of a stressed out state that we feel we have no control over. The spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle wrote a book called The Power of Now in which he argues that all of us are addicted to thinking and that we think impulsively and noisily in ways that actually hold us back. So I think it's important to learn about these things, how to cultivate an awareness of your inner world, of your mind's activity, and to learn how best to use it. Just like we train our bodies to be fitter or we train our hands to do certain tasks like touch typing or preparing food or joining two pieces of timber. And anyway, unlike schooling, this podcast is not compulsory listening. You can turn it off whenever you want. Logical fallacies can be used deliberately to trick people, but it's also possible, because they're so convincing, for you to repeat one that you heard from someone else, or to make one up yourself without realising you're doing it. I'm sure I must have done it a few times during this series, so keep a sharp ear out for that. As I said, you'll come across logical fallacies on the news, in news articles, in conversation with other people, in all sorts of places. If it's in conversation, it may or may not be deliberate, but if it's in the news, it most likely is a deliberate tactic. Either that or the journalist in question is just being a bit lazy and hasn't thought about what they're doing enough. I'm not sure which one of them is the more frightening possibility. The first logical fallacy I want to bring up is fairly simple, and it's something you've definitely been confronted with if you've ever taken part in any sort of protest or political action. And that's ad hominem, which is Latin for against the person. This means attacking the arguer and not the argument. But these individuals, I mean Extinction Rebellion, I mean, they're the most alarming cult that I have ever come across in my life. I mean, these people are strange. They're hippies. These people are mad. And that's the only thing, the only way you can actually describe them is mad. The thing that I found surprising was how middle class they all were, that they weren't crusties. Breed, what's your take? A common one you'll get if you ever take part in a protest is that you should get a job. You're just an unwashed hippie, an unemployed waster with nothing better to do. In recent years, this has evolved into the idea of a professional protester or a rent-a-mob, that people are just doing this as a lifestyle choice, not because they actually want to change anything. You'll especially get this one if you take part in, in, in environmental activism. I've been told to get a job loads of times, regardless of how jobless I was or wasn't at the time. The people who were levelling this accusation at me were doing it because they were unable to argue with what I was saying to them. If you see this happening, or if this happens to you, it doesn't automatically mean that you're right, but it does mean that the person insulting you doesn't have anything to say. That's why they're relying on insults rather than actually engaging with you. So that's a bit of criticism. And now for some critique. Remember that part of critical thinking is not just picking out logical flaws. We can also look at the ideology behind the argument. The argument, this one, that protesters are jobless wasters with nothing better to do, is built on the assumption that anyone who takes part in a protest is unemployed and therefore we shouldn't take this protest seriously. 
because the participants don't have jobs, they're not serious people. The fact that this can be used as an insult is based on an even more deeply ingrained assumption, which is that if you're an unemployed person, you have no right to protest. There's nothing wrong with being unemployed. In fact, if you're unemployed or if you're insecurely employed or, or you're on like a, what you call it, a zero-hour contract or you're just, you, you're not, you haven't got guaranteed work, you probably have more reason than anyone to be angry and at the status quo and to want to take political action. Now, generally, I find the best way to deal with a person who's, who's attacking you rather than attacking what you're saying is to just ignore them. You know, other people might disagree with that, but I think that's the best approach. If they're just insulting you, just stick to your guns and remember why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, you're probably winning if all they have is insults. This practice of making a stereotype of a person to discredit them instead of actually dealing with their argument brings us to another common logical fallacy, which is the straw man. This is a really effective one, and it can be fairly convincing and difficult to spot. A straw man argument is where you come up with a caricature of a position or opinion to make it easier to discredit. You make an exaggerated or inaccurate version of the argument to make the original argument seem ridiculous. You see this a lot in arguments against socialism or any kind of left-wing political idea. Someone might, someone might say to you, oh, if you're a socialist then you obviously want to turn this country into Soviet Russia or North Korea. Now, they are examples of socialism, but they're extreme examples. And as well as being communist in name at least, they're also despotic and authoritarian. A more down-to-earth example of socialism in action is the cooperative movement. There's a huge tradition of agricultural syndicalism here in Ireland, like there's dairy co-ops and fishing co-ops, they're quite common. Not as common as they used to be, but they still are. Or public libraries, the idea that our communities should have free access to books to better ourselves. A publicly funded health service, public transport. Uh, do you like weekends, the eight-hour day? These were all victories won through the protests of socialists and anarchists who gave their lives to change how work was organised. So there's a huge spectrum of beliefs and actions that fall under the banner of socialism, and reducing it to Stalin or Kim Jong-un is obviously silly, but it can be a very effective way to shut down any discussion about it. If you try to advocate for like a basic socialist idea like having a shorter working week, universal basic services or equal COVID pay for everyone, social housing, you might be accused of wanting to turn the country into Soviet Russia. Now, following on from this straw man or straw comrade is another logical fallacy, the slippery slope. At the same time I'm talking about this, I'll talk about two other logical fallacies, as all these are quite similar, and that's the argument from adverse consequences and begging the question. Yeah, Charlie's Angels. Now, what's Charlie's Angels supposed to be? Three lesbians? Or Butch, Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, you know, supposed to be uh, gay, you know what I mean? Um, where do these people want to take this? I guarantee you, if they use this as some kind of precedent, right, don't be surprised of what they'll find, uh, you know, next and what they'll expect you to accept. First, the slippery slope. If you ever hear someone use the phrase opening the floodgates, you can be fairly sure this person's talking through their hole and hasn't actually thought very deeply about what it is they're saying. You'll hear this phrase a lot in relation to drug laws or immigration laws. If we get rid of direct provision and make Ireland a kinder place for refugees, we'll be inundated. If we legalise weed use, before you know it, all drugs will be legal and we'll all be strung out, perma-baked and every day will be Sunday. Or face masks. First the government makes us wear face masks, what next? They'll be telling us how to dress. If robosexual marriage becomes legal, imagine the horrible things that will happen to our children. Then imagine we said those things, since we couldn't think of any. As a mother, those things worry me. The argument from adverse consequences is similar. Example, if we didn't have laws against drug possession, then loads more people would take drugs and get fucked up. But 
Is there any evidence to show that decriminalising drugs leads to more drug addiction? There isn't. There's lots of proof to show the opposite is true, actually. But that doesn't stop this emotionally driven, fear-based argument from being very compelling to people. This is like begging the question, also known as assuming the answer. We need harsh criminal sentences to discourage drug use. But again, where's the proof that harsh sentences discourages drug use? There isn't any, because it doesn't. It's just a punishment. But again, these kinds of statements can appear to us like common sense, because they support the way things already are. They back up the current order of society and they make it seem scary, stupid and irresponsible to try and change it, even though changing it might be the responsible thing to do. Logical fallacies tend to be used in polarised debates, arguments where each person fits into an opposing camp, and they're they're kind of a tactic to prevent any sort of proper conversation. There's no chance for any actual learning, nobody's going to change their opinion. A very common fallacy is the excluded middle, or the false dichotomy. You either love your country or you hate your country. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. You can either be spiritual or scientific, but never both. Ideas that are represented as total opposites, but really, in the real world where it's all complicated and confusing, they aren't. I opened this series of podcasts actually with a false dichotomy. It was also a meaningless question, which is another type of logical fallacy. I started by asking, are we more easily convinced by facts or feelings? That's a nonsense question. Emotions are facts, they're real. And how able we are to comprehend and to let in a material fact depends heavily on our emotional state. So the two things are totally intertwined. It's kind of like the nature versus nurture question. Really, it's both. We're defined by our genetics and how we interact with our environment. Sagan lists about 20-odd logical fallacies, so I'm not going to try and go into all of them in too much detail because that'll take ages, but... I'll try and get through them as, as, as quickly and as clearly as, as I can now. The next one I want to bring up is just general inconsistency. For example, the world's governments, state governments all over the world, spend way more on defence than they do on protecting their people from environmental disaster. Or, as we brought up before on this podcast in a previous episode, the Irish government tried to introduce water charges to prevent water waste, but they refused to fix the leaks in our water infrastructure. of the water that leaves our treatment plants leaks before it reaches our taps. So for every litre we consume, it's actually two litres overall that's being used. This brings up another logical fallacy, which is short-term versus long-term. A failure to address the problem in the long run, instead focusing on short-term quick fixes that don't really solve the problem. Politicians are really prone to these two fallacies because they only think in five-year election cycles. They don't need to think beyond that as long as they can make themselves look good in the short term. Another one, and this this really does my head in because you you come up against an awful lot, is the the statistics of small numbers. In other words, anecdotal evidence. This comes up a lot in conversations about, well, loads of things, but like the one that I thought about recently was council housing. You know, some melter will ring Joe Duffy to have a whinge about somebody, somebody they knew who, you know, destroyed the council house they were given. Uh, that, the, that the council rented out them and therefore the government shouldn't waste money on council housing but that's just one person amongst thousands when we look at the big picture most people aren't like that and the benefits of building social housing massively outweigh the costs of building them I was kind of relying on anecdotal evidence at the start actually when I was talking about the financial inaccessibility of university I used that example of the critical thinking handbook costing silly money that's not enough 
though in itself to prove the point. So I'll spend a, a minute now putting a little bit more meat on the bones of that particular argument. When you look at it, Ireland does actually have a higher than average third level attendance compared to other EU countries. And enrolments have been steadily increasing over the last decades. But while enrolments in business, law and administration courses have increased, enrolments over the last decade in the humanities is decreasing. In one way, there shouldn't be anything wrong with this or anything sinister about it, because wanting an education in law or business makes sense if you want to get work at the end of it. But those kinds of courses usually don't contain any training in critical thinking. That mostly happens in the humanities, which is philosophy, anthropology, sociology, etc. The humanities, though, are devalued. They're seen as a waste of time, because, as I said at the start, the notion of studying philosophy is a little bit airy-fairy. But philosophies govern the world. Everyone who gets into a leadership position has some kind of philosophy or ideology that they're influenced by. Every state and every corporation has an ideology, they just don't always name them. Every college department, whether it's teaching anthropology or philosophy or business or law, they all have ideologies as well. Being able to identify these tendencies can help us to understand how these institutions work. So, like I said, while more people are getting educated to a high level in Ireland, they're being educated to meet job requirements, to maintain the status quo, but they're left ill-equipped to think critically. This is leaving us in a bit of a troubling situation politically because we have a generation of highly trained managers and administrators who are capable of moving up the career ladder but who can also be easily manipulated by emotional blackmail. You remember the, the study I talked about at the start where in the US anyway, uh, between a third and a half of college students were unable to tell fact from opinion. And that's not a slight against any of these students, they just simply aren't being taught this stuff. It's seen as a waste of time because so much of the stuff it's analysing is just taken for granted as this is just the way things are. Don't ask questions and don't try to change anything. It's a waste of time. Another example of anecdotal evidence that comes up a lot is somebody knows somebody who vaccinated their kids and then the kid turned out to be autistic. Therefore, vaccines cause autism. But if you look at the big picture, again, there's no proof. This last one actually is a very dangerous one and it brings up two very common and at first difficult to spot fallacies, difficult to recognise. First, we have post hoc ergo propter hoc, more Latin. This time it means it happened after, so it was caused by. Ah, not a bear in sight. The bear patrol must be working like a charm. That's specious reasoning, Dad. Thank you, honey. By your logic, I could claim that this rock keeps tigers away. Oh, how does it work? It doesn't work. Uh-huh. It's just a stupid rock. Uh-huh. But I don't see any tigers around here, do you? Lisa, I want to buy your rock. Just because I sneezed after scratching my arse doesn't mean that scratching my arse made me sneeze. Could have been all sorts of other environmental factors. This is similar but not the same as the confusion of correlation and causation. People who are opposed to vaccines will point out that as the rates of vaccination increase, so too do the rates of autism. But just because two things increase alongside each other doesn't mean that one causes the other. You need to look at other factors. But basically the point is that anecdotal evidence can be really dodgy. But what's even more dodgy though is suppressed evidence or half-truths. Half-truths are a handy one because the person using them can try and claim they're not lying. There was a lot of this in that article I examined in part two, the conversation between Professor Boyle and Dr Mercola about the coronavirus being supposedly a genetically engineered bioweapon. Now I spent most of that episode 
going at and kind of debunking their argument but but one major issue i actually forgot to clear up was what he said about bsl4 labs remember bsl4 biosafety level 4 labs so i think as far as i'm aware that's the highest level of safety for a, a lab that studies um these kinds of uh, biological agents be it viruses or bacteria or whatever stuff that's dangerous um, he Boyle claimed that they were only used for bioweapons now of course that I didn't actually directly confront that in part 2 I, I, I realise now but that's obviously nonsense right you know I, I listed some of the other uses for BSL-4 labs in that episode like just general virus research now when he was talking about it, he was being critical of Monsanto in the US uh, that they're studying Ebola in one of their BSL-4 labs and and that that's just self-evidently dodgy now I don't trust Monsanto either but that doesn't mean that they're trying to turn Ebola into a weapon Essentially, what I'm getting at with that is, you know, even if you agree with someone, like I agree that Monsanto probably aren't the soundest com- company in the world. They're, you know, it's worth looking at their activity. It's worth questioning what, why, what do they use a BSL4 lab for? But even though if I might agree with the fundamentals of someone's ethics, I still need to be, I still need to keep an eye on what they're saying and make sure they're not bullshitting me, because that's blatantly what these lads were doing. Now, I haven't exhausted Sagan's list of logical fallacies, and even his list wasn't extensive. If you want to learn more about logical fallacies, just do a quick search online and you'll find loads of resources on them. There was one particularly good video on YouTube, which was uh, 31 Logical Fallacies in 8 Minutes by uh, a Scottish YouTuber. I can't think of her name now, but just look for that. 31 31 Logical Fallacies in 8 Minutes, and you'll find that if you want to learn more about that. Uh, But for now, I'm going to move on from criticism to critique. When we take a look at the big picture, the wider political context that this conversation takes place in, we see American and British politicians accusing the Chinese government of creating this virus in a lab. We also see Chinese politicians accusing the US of manufacturing the virus. Now both countries have BSL-4 labs in them, so it's not completely impossible that either country has the capacity to manufacture a bioweapon, even though as I demonstrated in part two, it's just very unlikely. When I took the time to actually read the research papers published about SARS and COVID and other coronaviruses, what I found was that most of these scientists, Chinese, American and other nationalities, have worked together and collaborated on this research. Shi Zheng Li, the famous Batwoman I mentioned in part two, who the interviewers accused of working on, on weaponizing the SARS virus, is a research fellow with the American Academy of Microbiology. So what's going on here? Like, What agenda is Professor Boyle and Dr Mercola working to serve? Are they being scientific and trying to get at the truth? Doesn't seem like it to me. Chinese and American scientists are working together to learn about viruses, while Chinese and American politicians are throwing accusations at each other to score political points. Who are you going to place your trust in? Stories are powerful, so we would be wise to be careful which ones we tell. Do we want to focus on and encourage unity and cooperation, or division and competition? Sagan tells us that science is a transnational, intergenerational, collaborative, cooperative discipline. Do we listen to the wisdom of scientists or to the warhawk rhetoric of politicians? Now that there, that, that's bordering on a meaningless question actually, a rhetorical question designed to convince you that scientists are sound and politicians are the bad guys. I'm struggling to let go of my biases here as you can probably tell. But staying with Sagan for a moment. I really like what he said about experts and authorities. I've quoted him a few times in that. There's no authorities in science, but we do have experts. 
This idea of expertise can be abused though. Just because someone is an expert in one field doesn't mean they're an expert in another. In part two, I took a quick look at Professor Boyle's background and although I found much to admire, he doesn't really have the expertise in microbiology and virology or anything like that that would give him the final say in this matter. But what about the interviewer, Dr. Mercola? Where's he coming from? He makes his money, millions of dollars each year by the way, promoting and selling dubious health products and advice. He has claimed, among other things, that he can cure autism using osteopathy, that the avian flu, the bird flu, was a hoax, that sun cream causes cancer, that being gay shortens your life, and here's my favourite, that HIV doesn't cause AIDS, because AIDS is in fact a psychological problem. Now, as well as being deeply insulting to the millions of people currently living with HIV and deeply disrespectful to the memories of the hundreds of thousands that have lost their lives to the virus, it's also just plain old-fashioned bullshit. It's just wrong, like, it's just factually incorrect. On top of all that nonsense, he promotes the health benefits of tanning beds, something that a majority of medical professionals would advise against. He also happens to sell tanning beds. That there is a major red flag. If someone stands to gain financially from the story they're telling you, we need to be careful. How does he stand to gain from telling us this nonsense tale about the coronavirus? His slogan is that he's helping people take control of their own health. All of his solutions, his whole approach is deeply individualistic and that's what he wants to promote, this me against the world mentality. The solutions to the coronavirus, mask wearing and vaccines, all require us to think collectively to take the health of the whole society and the whole ecosystem into account. He doesn't want that. He just wants you to look after yourself and buy his health supplements and his tanning beds. I also read that he's a member of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. This is an association of conservative doctors who, among other things, have opposed affordable healthcare legislation and lobbied against the Universal Healthcare Act. So he claims to be fighting to help people take control of their health, to be looking out for people's health, yet the organisation he's a member of advocates against making healthcare accessible to everyone. He pretends to be anti-establishment, but when it comes down to it, he works to maximise his own wealth and power. If there's no proper public health service, people are more likely to turn to quacks like him for help. And now again, I seem to be slipping into another logical fallacy here myself, ad hominem, attacking the arguer. I shouldn't call him an insulting term like that, I should just let his actions stand as the only judgement needed. But it just makes me very angry to see people operating like this, using the language of science and the cloak of radicalism to disguise a drive for personal gain. And of course, there's nothing wrong with anger. Getting angry is a perfectly rational response to a full-grown person lying to you. What most of these fallacies have in common is that they use a cloak of logic to cover what is actually an emotionally driven statement. They prey on our fears and worries, on our uncertainty and mistrust around people or ideas that are unfamiliar to us. As you can probably tell, I've been struggling throughout this episode to put my own feelings aside and to analyse the subject coldly. Now that doesn't mean I'm wrong, but it does mean it's more likely that I might have missed out on some perspectives, or I might have misrepresented some things. So it's up to you to listen to what I'm saying with the critical ear, to decide for yourself if what I'm saying is based on evidence or not. If anything, this illustrates how difficult it is to really think critically. It isn't possible all the time, but when we manage to do it, it works out better for everyone. In the next episode, I'm going to explore a key principle of critical thinking that can help us achieve greater understanding of views that we don't agree with.
the principle of charity. But yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. If you want to get in touch to talk about anything that came up in this episode, you can give me a shout at turningearthradio at gmail.com. Uh, or if you want to read any of the resources I used in researching for this, you can find them on turningearth.home.blog. If you'd like to financially support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at coffee.com forward slash turningearth. That's ko-fi.com. Uh, or if you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash turningearth. The podcast got its first patron there last week, which is very, very exciting, very encouraging. Uh, it doesn't cost a lot to make the podcast, but... I do spend money on promotion and on transport to go and interview people uh, so any amount of financial support really helps with that and of course myself and Gareth and anyone who contributes give we give our time for free uh, I haven't been interviewing people much this year for obvious reasons but I hope to get into that uh, there's a few people I had lined up to interview for the, the series on forestry um, and I really want to get back into that um, as soon as it becomes possible to travel again and as usual I'd like to thank Glushucht who pay for the hosting of the podcast and remind you that they don't exercise any editorial control so if I've said something that pisses you off come at me don't be hassling Glushucht and thanks finally thanks to Gareth who as usual provides all the imagery and thanks to everyone who um, has listened to this and given me criticism and feedback it's helped an awful lot if you enjoyed this, please spread the word, subscribe on whatever podcast app you use and review it if that's a possibility. Uh, tell a friend, tell several friends and most importantly, if if, if you think I've said something that's totally arseways, uh, get in touch and we'll have a conversation about it. For now, good luck and the next episode will be out in one or two weeks, I'd say. Slant.